Now we left off last week in Ezekiel chapter 42, verses 13 and 14. So I'm going to read those two verses to you again. It says, Then he said to me, The north chambers and the south chambers opposite the yard are the holy chambers, where the priests who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings. There they shall put the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, for the place is holy. When the priests enter the holy place, they shall not go out of it into the outer court without laying there the garments in which they minister, for these are holy. They shall put on other garments before they go near to that which is for the people. All right. So in the millennial temple, we saw where we left off last week, there's going to be special chambers for where the priests are to eat the grain, the sin and the guilt offerings. But what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a little bit of time to take you back to the book of Leviticus. I know it's one of your favorites. And uh, we're going to take a look at some of the instructions for the priests and how God provided for the priests as well as gave them specific instructions as to their role. And as we do so, we're going to transition from looking at what the role of the priests in the Old Testament was, what the role of the priests will be in the Millennial Kingdom. And we're going to talk a lot tonight. Most of our time will be dealt with the fact that we have been given a role as priests in this uh, time period that we live now called the Church Age. A lot of you will say, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a priest. No, actually, you're going to find out you are. Male, female, you're in the church. God wants to use you as a priest right now. So that's where we're going to go tonight. So let's go back to Leviticus chapter 2, and let's take a look at how God provided for the priests and gave instructions in their role for the sin offering and the grain offering and the burnt offering and all that. So uh, let's take a look at Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. God says, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened, unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering with, with, that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. So here we see so far now is that when the people were to bring their offering of their grain to the Lord, whether it was just in the flour form or whether it was baked without yeast or however they prepared it, they were to bring it with some oil and some frankincense. The priests were then to take a portion of it and put the frankincense and oil and burn it before the Lord in the pleasing aroma. The rest of it, whether it was in flour form or baked form or whatever, was to be taken by the priests. That was theirs. And that's how God provided for them. But you're going to see there was more than just, just the grain that he provided for them. Go to Leviticus chapter 6. But don't miss as you're turning to Leviticus 6 that that portion 
was a most holy portion. The portion that the priest got was a very most, was a most holy portion. Leviticus chapter 6, look at verses 8 through 18. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning. He shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar, and one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering, and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of the meeting they shall eat it." It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it as decreed forever throughout your generations for the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. Isn't that interesting? When they get to eat from the holy portion, remember, whatever was brought to the Lord, portion went to the Lord, the rest went to the priest to eat. But whatever touched it, when they came in contact with the sacrifice for their sin, they were made holy. It's an interesting thing. Keep that in mind. That's an important thing for us. Go over to Leviticus chapter 6, though, again, and look at verses 24 through 30. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it in a holy place. It shall be eaten in the court of the tent of the meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of the meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. So here we see that if blood, while they were doing this, splashed on their garments, they had to wash their garments. And you can see how they did it. They used it hot water. They boiled water in a pot to do the cleaning of the garment. If it was an earthenware pot, they were to just destroy that pot afterwards. But if it was other, of metals, they were to scour them before they could use them again. But again, whatever came in contact with the sacrifice became holy. You also notice that they couldn't just eat it anywhere. They had to eat it in a special place, in a holy spot. And it was the, it, the, the offerings were actually set aside and kept in a holy place. If you have your picture, we're not going to go there, but if you remember your picture of the Millennial Kingdom Temple, you'll see the chambers for the priests and lots of chambers all around. And there are special chambers where they were to eat the holy offerings before the Lord. Go over to Leviticus chapter 10. Because now we're going to get a little bit more information, and this information is actually going to start pertaining to us even more. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 20, it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, 
and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Azel, the uncle of Aaron. And he said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, these are his two sons that are left, he said, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain, the offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings, and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, because it is your due and your sons' due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the beast, sorry, the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons, and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due, your sons due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved shall, be, you, shall they bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded." Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burnt up. And he was angry with the Eleazar and Ithamar and the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is the thing most holy and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded and Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things of these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. So we're going to take a second here to help you grasp what all's gone on. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, went and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. They went into the holy place and they brought the fire and the fire of the Lord came out and consumed them and killed them on the spot. Now, there's debate as to what it means, unauthorized fire. In the context, it looks like they might have shown up to do their job drunk. That's why God says, don't come before me having had strong drink. They just weren't doing their role in the way in which they were supposed to. They weren't taking God serious when the fact that he was to be considered as holy. And for whatever reason, God killed them. Moses says to Aaron, you can't grieve your sons. You can't let your hair hang loose and all this. They had the cousins come and carry them away. And then we also see that they're told to eat the stuff that was given that was theirs. And they also, we also notice that when people brought animals, when they brought chickens, 
or whatever it was that they brought that was a bird, they were to take the, the, the thigh and the breast and they would wave it before the Lord and then they were to eat it. By the way, that solves the whole which is better, white meat or dark. They had to eat both, you know. But at the same time, God, then Moses realizes when all this going on that the burnt offering was, uh, the sin offering was just burnt up. It wasn't eaten. It wasn't brought, the blood wasn't brought before the Lord like they're supposed to do each day. And Mo, Aaron says, look, with all that's gone on today, if I had just gone through the motions and acted like nothing was any different, do you think God would have been pleased with me, with all that's happened to me? And Moses said, okay, we're going to let that go for today since you just watched two of your boys get killed. But I want you to go back to verses 10 and 11 because those are going to be key for us tonight. Look at the responsibility of the priests. God through Moses says, You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. I'm going to ask you, I want your help here. According to those two verses, what was the priest's main role? I'm sorry? Well, be judgmental in a good way, in the sense of they were to declare what was clean and unclean. They were to teach what was common and holy, the difference between the two, and to teach the words of God. Go ahead. Yeah, they were to teach the law of God, what God had said, the words of God. Don't miss this, because I want you to grasp this. They were to distinguish for the rest of the people of Israel the difference between holy and common. The difference between clean and unclean. And they were to teach them the words of God. In other words, even though God had revealed himself to the nation of Israel, he'd revealed himself even more to those who were serving as his priests. And as you can see here, they had close interactions with God, but they also, with that close interactions with God, were the ones who were being taught what is clean, what is unclean, what is holy, what's common, and they were to be passing that on. Now, we too have a serious role to play in God's design for we who are in Christ, those of us who have been in contact with the true sacrifice and have been made holy are now priests and serve the Lord between men and God. We have that responsibility as well. Let me show you what I mean. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's a passage we read before we, as we closed last week, but now we're going to spend a little bit more time in it. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 12. Peter says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Does that sound like verses 10 and 11 in Leviticus 10? Our role as priests, we're holy priesthood, he said up there in uh, um, verse 5. And then he also declares in verse 9 that we're a royal priesthood. How are we not only a holy, we hopefully understand how we're a holy priesthood, but does anybody understand why he calls us a royal priesthood? Because we're heirs to salvation. Because we're heirs to the king. We're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Jesus is both king and priest. And because of our connection with him, we've been given a priesthood. But look closely at what it says. He says, we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What were they to distinguish between for the rest of the people? The difference between holy and common, clean and unclean, and proclaim the words of God. That's our responsibility as well. Actually, and I'm going to show you two from the scriptures, we who have now been made holy through the contact with the holy sacrifice, if you will, the true sacrifice, Jesus, we have been now given the same responsibility. Oh, we don't have to do daily rituals or anything like that, but God has left us here on this earth as priests between him and the rest of the world so that the rest of the world would know who he really is. We understand things about him that they don't understand. And how does he want to use us to accomplish this purpose? He wants us to live our lives in holiness in such a way that the world will see a difference between us and them and the difference between holy and common and clean and unclean. Well, don't just take my word for it. Look at verse 10 and following. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. By the way, in my Bible, I like to use different colors to kind of tie different sections together. I use pink here, and I highlighted to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's a word to do, offer spiritual sacrifices. And then I drew a little arrow all the way down here to verse 11 and made that pink as well, where it says that we're to live our lives by saying no to the flesh and the passions of our flesh, which wage war against our soul, and to live our lives in holiness. Folks, that is how we offer spiritual sacrifices. What are we to do daily according to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? We're to offer our bodies, our flesh, as a sacrifice. We're to lay it on the altar. We're not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, which is living for self, living for flesh. Whatever feels good, do it. We are actually to live our lives in such a way that we lay our flesh on the altar and we say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. We are to be offering spiritual sacrifices. And how do we do that? We live obedient to the spirit of God, which will manifest itself in holiness and purity. And there will be a difference between us and the world. Let me ask you a question. and We'll deal with it more later on tonight. Does the church look a whole lot different from the world right now? Doesn't. The church doesn't look different from the world, do we? The divorce rate's the same in the church pretty much as it is in the world. Pornography and addictions and struggles. There's really not a whole lot of difference between us and them. Now, there's lots of reasons which we'll get into tonight, possibly. We'll see how far we go. 
But let me just tell you this. God takes the responsibility that he gave the priest seriously. Do we not agree that we've seen that already? And we, as we touched on last week, have been given a, a responsibility as well to live as priests. Well, let's go back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Go look at verses 13 and through 25. Peter says, Therefore, prepare your mind, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, don't live for this world, live for the next one. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. By the way, I marked that pink as well. Ties with that other sections, doesn't it? Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for, for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word, the good news that was preached to you. Again, he says, we're to live our lives in such a way that we're actually saying no to the world, not being conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. But since the one who called us is holy, we need to be holy in what we do. Now, we're going to deal with that in a lot more detail tonight. Because if you hear this message tonight, and you all of a sudden are convicted, and your thought is, okay, I'm going to start living more for Jesus. I'm going to be more holy. I'm going to try better to stop sinning. You've already failed. Because you can't do it. But because you have living within you the one who has lived in a body like yours and mine, was tempted in every way. None of us have been tempted in every way. But Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And he lived in this body, and he never sinned. The one who has had victory over the flesh and the world and the devil lives within each, each of us. And he can give us the victory as we learn how to listen and daily put our flesh on the altar and say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. And folks, let me just tell you, that is the spiritual sacrifices that we're to offer. What are we to be doing right now? How are we to be living in this world? We are to be distinguishing to the people that don't know God the difference between holy and common, clean and unclean, and declaring, proclaiming the word of God who's brought us out of darkness into light. We should be telling everybody about how awesome he is and what he's done. And when they see the differences in us, they're going to have to in time say, that's got to be of God, that can't be of you. And you can look at them and say, you're right. But what are Christians known as now? We're known as the rule followers and the people that don't do this and do do that. And they don't understand. It's, it's about a relationship with God. And we're supposed to be declaring that to the people. Our lives should be different enough that they actually have the conversation with us. But nowadays it's not. And I want to just challenge you tonight as we continue in this study, as we start dealing with this in more detail, 
Are you taking seriously your role as priest? Yes, Janie, you're a priest. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Just It messes with our head because we've been taught the priests are those special people or preachers or... No. If you're a child of God through Jesus Christ, you are being built as a royal priesthood, chosen people, and he wants to use you to declare his goodness to the world. Let's, let's take a look at some more. You see, just as the priest had to be made clean in order to perform his duties. You notice that there were certain clothes he had to wear at certain times that were clean, and then he had to take them off to go deal with the people, and there was washings and ceremonial things they had to do. In order to perform their duties, they had to stay clean. That's why if blood splattered on their clothing, they had to wash it in a certain way to remain clean. Just as the priest had to be made clean in order to perform his duties, so too we, who have been made holy, must stay in the sanctification process so that we can be effective in our roles as representatives of a holy God. Anybody here not sin anymore? Me neither. But let me say something to you, and I want you to hear this. I believe the Bible does not teach that you, if you become a Christian, you'll become sinless. But I do believe the Bible teaches that if you become a Christian, you'll sin less. You will not become sinless, but you will sin less. There should be a process. We're going to be getting into that. There should be a, well, you, you read how we heard in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me read it to you again, verses 1 and following. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into this salvation which you have, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, as he's writing to a group of people, he doesn't know if they're all saved or not. But if you have tasted that the Lord is good, if you've been saved, it's a process of growing up. We've been made holy, but we're in that sanctification process. And we need to be made clean on a daily basis through continual acknowledgement of our, our, our failures, if you will, thanking God for his sanctification. Go ahead, Mike. Yes, he sure did. But he then in Romans 7 said, after things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. He also said, who will give me victory over this body? And he answers the question, Jesus. But he was also the same one in chapter 6, just prior to chapter 7, that said, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. It's easy to say, well, Paul struggled with it, and I'm like that too. The things I don't want to do, I do, and things I do, I don't. No, no, no. Paul wasn't saying it's okay. He was acknowledging that he struggled but he was also the one that said, I can have victory through Jesus Christ. As I say no, to, I choose who I'm going to obey, Paul said. He said, you choose who you're going to obey. And he said, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Look at verses 13 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its saltiness or its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. They used it as road surface after it lost its saltiness. By the way, that's what's happening to the church right now. The church is losing its saltiness. Folks, let me just remind you that in Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelation... The last letter was written to the church in Laodicea, and they all represent time periods in the, of, the, of the church age. And I believe we're in a mixture of Philadelphia and Laodicea. But the message to the church in Laodicea is, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I wish you were hot. I wish you were cold. At least if you're cold, you'd know you needed help. 
But because you're lukewarm, not good for anything, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And by the way, that's what's going to happen to those who claim to be Christians who aren't saved at the rapture. They will be left behind. And we love to quote Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I'll come in with him and eat with him and he with me. And some of you probably have seen the beautiful painting that was made years ago of Jesus in the garden knocking on that door and how that door has no handle on the outside. It only can be opened from the inside. You, you've all seen that painting. If you haven't, it's a beautiful thing. And for years, evangelists have said, Revelation 3.21 says to the lost, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And guess what? And it's true, Jesus is offering it to the lost, but the sad thing is we've forgotten that he wrote that letter to a church. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you're a Christian. Is there a difference between you and the rest of the world? Is there a transformation that has taken place and is taking place? Have you been made holy and are being made holy? Are you been made perfect but you're being sanctified? Are you growing up? Because if we're the salt of the earth, if the salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? Then look at verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, and but on a stand it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What was the priest's role again? They were distinguished before the people as God's representatives, the difference between right and wrong, holy and common, clean and unclean, and they were to declare the words of God. We in the church are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I believe he was talking to the Jews at this time, but these truths apply to us because that role has been given to us in the church age. He'll use the nation of Israel during the millennial kingdom as his people again to reveal himself to the nations, but right now that role's been given to us. Are they seeing it? For years we've read how Peter talks about we need to be ready to give reason for the hope that lies within us when people ask. Is anybody asking? Well, if they're not asking, maybe they're not seeing a difference. And let me just say something to you straight up. We would all agree the world's pretty dark right now. And if you don't shine or even show up a little bit in this darkness, check your lamp. Check your lamp. This is a message for us all, myself included. I'll be honest with you. As I was doing this study, I struggle with sin just like everybody else. There are temptations that I fall to like others fall to. But let me just tell you, when God showed me how serious he took the role of the priest and that I've been given that role, it has given me a lot more power, if you will, and impetus to yield myself to the Spirit on a daily basis and let him have control. Because I don't want to be someone that he disqualifies. Doesn't mean I lose my salvation, but I'll be disqualified from the prize. What Paul said, didn't he say that too? Paul never worried that he loses salvation, but he said he, he, he beats his body and he, and he said he, he wants to be qualified for the prize, not disqualified. I want to challenge you in the days that we have left. God wants to use you to be his representative to the world Show them the difference between holy and common, clean and unclean. Are they seeing a difference? And only you and the Lord know where you need to work. Go to Ezekiel chapter 43. Ezekiel chapter 43. Look at verses 1 through 9. 
and the man, as you remember, it's Jesus taking Ezekiel around, Jesus before he took, put on flesh. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. The earth shone with his glory, and the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kebar Canal, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by their dead bodies of the kings at their high places, and by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them, they have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and all their dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. By the way, when God is talking here about the, their, their wall right next, with only a wall between, if you remember the, district, the, the instructions in the, the description of, the, of how the building of the Millennial Temple, the holy of holies and the holy place of the inner temple area, the chambers that were next to it, they clearly showed, if you go back and look, were not touching the Holy of Holies. There was a space between the priest chambers and the Holy of Holies. God was distinguishing the difference, that he was holy and he was separate and he was different. He needs to be. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I don't think he considers us Considering him holy when we call him the big guy upstairs. But we see here in chapter 43, the Holy Spirit coming back into the temple. I don't know if you remember this or not. We've been in Ezekiel for a while. But we saw the Holy Spirit leave Solomon's temple before God destroyed it. If you don't remember, go real quickly with me back to Ezekiel chapter 9. I'm going to run you real quick, but I want you to follow the path that the Holy Spirit leaves the temple. Ezekiel chapter 9, look at verse 3. It says, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. Remember, the top of the Ark of the Covenant was the cherub, and the Spirit of God rested there, and the glory of God was there. Well, it comes up from on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and it comes to the threshold or the doorpost, uh, a doorway of the temple. Go to chapter 10 and look at verse 4. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud. The court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Go down now to chapter 10, look at verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. These are the actual live cherubim now. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So we've seen the Holy Spirit, the glory of God has left the Ark of the Covenant, come to the threshold of the inner sanctuary. He then goes out into the outer court, gets on the cher cherubim, and goes to the east gate. Keep reading. Go to chapter 11. Look at verses 22 and 23. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So we saw that the Holy Spirit, in leaving the temple, came up from the Ark of the Covenant, 
came to the doorway of the Holy of Holies in the holy place, went out into the courtyard, went through the east gate, and out to the east of the city, and left. In chapter 43, we see the Holy Spirit's going to come back the same way that he left. Look again in verse 1, Then he led me to the gate, the gate that faces east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kebar Canal, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And while a man was standing beside me, I heard him speaking to me out of the temple, and he said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. Now, don't miss the fact that the glory of God that he saw was the same as when he met him at the Kebar Canal the first time at the beginning of Ezekiel when he's there in captivity in Babylon. And remember, he's 30 years old. And right about the time that someone served as a prophet or a priest in that age, he actually, God revealed himself to him and he fell down in worship when he met the Lord. And he saw the cherubim and the wheels within the wheels. We did that whole study. But he also says it's the exact same thing that I saw when he came to destroy the city. Isn't that interesting? The glory of God... For some, it's going to be awesome, magnificent, worshipful. For others, when, he's come, when he comes in his glory and he judges the world because of their sin, they're going to respond in a different way. The same glory. Actually, Paul talks about that. We won't have time to get there. We may read that section tonight if I have time. But he talks about the fact that to some, we are the aroma of life. To others, we're the aroma of death. When we share the message of salvation, some people say, wow, thank you. I'm so glad I ran into you. I'm so glad that I met you because I've come to know the Lord. But other people, we share the exact same message. And what do they say? We hate you. Go away. To some, we smell like life. To some, we smell like death. And Paul goes on and says, who's sufficient for such a thing? We're not. We don't get our sufficiency. So what I want from us, it's from God. What I want to do in the time we have left tonight is I want to kind of show you about the awesomeness of the glory of the Lord. And I'm just going to tell you now, this is a commercial for the series I'm going to be preaching. Not intentionally, but a lot of what we're looking at here is going to help you get ready for what I'm going to be doing when I preach at this church in the next three Sundays. Yes, sir. Go for it. Yes. We'll get to that in time. But yes. Once he goes through the east gate at that time, he seals it. It's sealed at that time. Okay, go to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus 40, 4-0. This is right after the tabernacle had been finished being completed in the wilderness. And I want you to see that the glory of the Lord came and dwelt in the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. 
in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journey. So when they finished building the tabernacle there in the wilderness, God's Spirit came to indwell it. And when He came to indwell it, He filled it with a cloud that the priests couldn't even get in to, to do their work in there. And how did He signify His Spirit? We're going to see it in more detail in a second. During the day, it looked like a cloud. At night, it was, looked like fire. Okay? Go over to 1 Kings chapter 8. As you're turning to 1 Kings chapter 8, keep in mind that for the longest time, the Lord dwelt in that moving tent, the tabernacle. Because whenever He moved, they moved. And they eventually get to the promised land and... David now is king, and David says, I want to build you a temple. Here I am living in a paneled house, and God, you're still living in a tent. Of course, God said, you're not the one I chose to build me a temple. Solomon, your son's going to build it. And so by the time Solomon becomes king, David has amassed all the materials for Solomon. David actually never gets to step foot in that temple. But Solomon has now finished building the, the temple. And look at 1 Kings chapter 8, and look at verses 1 through 11. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to, to, to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark, and they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary at the house in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. Because in this temple, by the way, they actually had not only the cherubim that were on top of the ark of the covenant when the ark of the covenant was put there, there were these huge, huge gold cherubim that stood in that most holy place over the ark, and on each side, their wings would, would touch. Actually, it was like this. One would touch a wing, would touch a wall. Another one would touch the other cherubim's wing, and the other one would touch wing and wall. They're huge gold cherubim, and beneath their wings was the Ark of the Covenant. And so that's why it says underneath the cherubim, underneath the wings of the cherubim, verse 7, for the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles, and its poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside, and they are there to this day, as of course the time this was written. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone Moses, that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place after carrying the ark, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Isn't that cool? They carried the ark from the tabernacle to the temple after it had been built, and once again, God signified His Spirit coming to indwell there through the glory and the cloud, so much so the priest couldn't get in there to minister. But as we saw in Ezekiel chapters 9 and following, the Holy Spirit left Solomon's temple, didn't it? And he didn't ever come back. Actually, you will find nowhere, I challenge you to show me anywhere where the Spirit of God came to indwell Zerubbabel's temple. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah go back to rebuild after the captivity in Babylon. They go back, we already saw that when the people who had seen the old temple saw it, they wept because it was so small. And of course, Herod added on to it later on, and that was the temple that was seen at the time of Jesus' day. But there's nowhere that the Spirit of God ever came back into the temple built by Ezra and Nehemiah and 
the one that was added on to by Herod. Of course, as you know, his spirit left. And he hasn't come back. So this is proof here again that this tabernacle or this temple we're seeing in Ezekiel must be the millennial kingdom temple because he said at that time he's going to come back and what? Never leave. That's where I'm going to have the soles of my feet. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here among the people forever. So where's God's glory now then? Where's God's glory now? In you. Again, not only are you a priest, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to take some time here in the 15 minutes we have left to kind of hammer this home a little bit because most Christians really don't get this. Otherwise, you'd live different than you do. As you've heard me say over the years, in order to get your driver's license, you've got to pass two tests. The first test you've got to pass to get a driver's license is a written test. You can get 100 on the written test. They're going to give you a driver's license? No. You then got to go prove you know how to do it. And you have to take a driving test. You fail the driving test, you don't get a license. The church today in America, at best, is, is passing the driving, the, sorry, the written test. We know, we know the right answers. Is Jesus in you? Amen. But we're failing the driving test. And so I want to let the scriptures kind of speak to this for us. Go to John chapter 14. Again, this is our commercial. Where we're going to go for the next three weeks at LifePoint. John chapter 14. Look at verses 15 through 20. Look at closely what Jesus says. He's with his disciples. They're in the upper room. They've already had the last supper. They've already had the washing of the feet. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world, sorry, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be where? In you. I will not leave you as orphans. I love that. Jesus says, I'm not going to give birth to you and then leave you all by yourself. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you'll see me because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I'm in my father and you're in me and I'm in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and who uh, loves me will love by my father and, and I will manifest myself to him. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Didn't Jesus just say that he was going to ask the father and the father was going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit? To live in us. But then Jesus says, in that day you'll realize I'm in you. So which is it? Yes. Actually, you got the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all in you. Jesus says, in that day you're going to realize I'm in the Father. You're in me. And I'm in you. By the way, that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, folks. Don't anybody teach you there's a second baptism or you need anything else. If you are in Christ, Christ is in the Father... You're in him and he's in you. You are swimming in God. You have been baptized in Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit, in the Father. You don't need any more baptism. <laughs> You've been baptized. Now, our water baptism is a picture of our baptism in the Spirit. But he says, I'm going to be with you forever. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. By the way, I'm not going to take the time to have you turn there, but write this down and look at it later on in Acts, sorry, Numbers chapter 9. 
Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 23. It's a really fun read. So this is actually something you'd enjoy reading. But in Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 23, they show that the Spirit of God came to indwell the tabernacle. And during the day, it looked like a cloud. And at night, it looked like a pillar of fire. And it was over the tabernacle. And whenever the cloud lifted and started to move, they moved. They'd quickly pack up everything in their tents and pack up the tabernacle, and they'd go wherever he was, and they'd follow him. And whenever he came to rest and stopped moving, we, they stopped and set up camp. If he stayed for a month, they didn't move for a month. If he's only there a couple of days, they were only a couple of their days. If he's only there 24 hours, they were only there 24 hours. But whenever he moved, they moved. If he didn't move, they didn't move. And buddy, that's another whole sermon for another day. But we who have the Spirit of God within us are supposed to be led of the Spirit and following him, listening to him. And oh, by the way, sometimes he doesn't move. Some of you are waiting for an answer from God and he hadn't moved. What are they to do until he moves? Stay. Wait, trust, but when he moves, follow him. But how did he signify his spirit coming to indwell the tabernacle? The pillar of fire. Well, go to Acts chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 4. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Does that sound familiar? And the divided tongues of, sorry, and divided tongues of, as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, because... When the Spirit came to indwell these believers, they all started preaching in languages they had never learned. And people started hearing them in languages that they knew, but they knew these people had never learned them. We get so caught up in the tongues. And because the Scripture said it looked like divided tongues, and then they all spoke in other tongues, we totally missed it. When God went to indwell the tabernacle, and His Spirit came to indwell the tabernacle or the temple, He signified it by a pillar of fire above it. A pillar of fire came into that room. You say, Jim, it's like a bunch of pillars. No, look closely. What does it say? Divided tongues. King James' word is cloven. You know what a cloven hoof is, right? A pillar of fire came into that upper room and divided into individual pillars of fire. And as the Spirit came to indwell each of the believers, God put a pillar of fire over each. Of the believers' heads. I want that. Isn't that cool? He put a pillar of fire over their heads, signifying that his spirit had come to indwell them. Well, go to 1 Corinthians 6. I, I could say this, but I'd rather you just read it from God's word. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. Look at verses 19 and 20. I'm going to wait for you to get there because I really want you to see this. This ties with everything we've looked at tonight. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God 
with your body. Folks, we're not just priests. We're temples. I think the responsibility has gotten a little bigger all of a sudden, don't you think? We've been given the responsibility to be representatives of God to the world, showing them the difference between holy and common, clean and unclean, proclaiming to them the words of God who's called us from darkness into his glorious light. And not only that, we've been given this awesome privilege where we don't even have to do it. He's going to do it because he's come to live within us, but it's going to make a difference in our holiness if we understand that the, where our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that God himself lives within us. We've been bought with a price. When you're tempted, just like I'm tempted, let the Spirit remind you, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Are you going to do whatever it is you're tempted to do as the temple? Are you going to use the temple to accomplish those things that you're tempted to do? What happened to the last temple when those unholy things were being done in it? It was destroyed. Now, don't get too scared. He's promised the Holy Spirit will be with us forever, but don't also miss the fact that the Bible says there is for Christians sins that at some point cause us to go home early. There is sin unto death, the Bible teaches. That's another whole study for another night. So what I want to do is I want to close with 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I really want you to see this. This is about to be a passage that some of you might have seen in times past. Maybe you've never seen this 2 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verses 4 through 18. Paul says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the, if the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, that was the law, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Now, before I read any further, some of you may not know what that means. If you don't know the story, let me remind you, when Moses spent that 40 days in the presence of God on the mountain as he was getting the Ten Commandments, when he came down from the mountain, he didn't realize it, but just he had a reflective glory from being in the presence of God, so much so that his face glowed and everybody was really freaked out by it. He actually had to wear a veil over his face so people could talk to him because they were scared by how much glory he had just from being in the presence of God. He says if the law that brought death had that much glory, how much more glory should be what brings life. Look at verse 9. For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. We also know that another reason he wore the veil was as he started to lose the glory, he didn't want people to realize the glory was going away, and he, he kept it hidden from everybody because he wanted to think he still had the glory. He's as human as all of us. Look at verse 14. But their minds, the Jews, were hardened. For to this day, when they re read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. 
Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's another whole message for another whole time. But folks, let me just tell you, I'm tired of watching the church fight each other and beat each other up over how God saves. Over this whole predestination free will mess. Let me just say something to you. We don't know how God does it. We just know that God does it. And we know that the Bible clearly says that man has a responsibility. Because look at the verse here. It says, when man turns to the Lord, then the veil is lifted. There's too many people out there saying the veil has to be lifted. And then, and let me just tell you, God's so sovereign... He can control the whole thing, and I still have choice. Stop fighting over it. Stop wasting your Sunday school lessons arguing over how God saves. Let me just tell you, the Bible doesn't tell us how God saves. The Bible tells us God saves, but the Bible's full of why God saves. Why don't we take a look at why God saves instead of how God saves? It's by faith, by His grace. Man has a responsibility. I don't know how his sovereignty and my responsibility go together, but somehow they do. I don't understand how God can be one God, yet Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally three persons, yet always one. I don't understand it, but I believe it. And I don't understand how God does this salvation. I don't know whether the chicken came first or the egg or the faith or the repentance or whatever. Let me just tell you, if you believe, you'll be saved. And stop fighting over it. But look now at the verse 17. This is the part I want you to go home and meditate on. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Did you see it? The glory that we have received is in us. But the world isn't seeing it right now because we live in the flesh more than in the spirit. We live out of our own strength versus the spirit. And we have to learn how to daily say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. But as we do, we then become transformed and more and more glory is going to be seen. One day, I believe we're all going to glow. I believe in heaven and eternity with our eternal bodies. I believe we're going to have a glow because we were made in his image and we lost that and it's been marred. It's now in us. We'll get into that in our series coming up. But we all are being transformed into that glory. So today, don't set out to go live holy for God. You can't. But set out to say, Lord, you've chosen to use me as one of your priests in this world to show them the difference between holy and common, clean and unclean, declare who you are. I want to do that. Would you do that through me? And thank you that you didn't send me out to do it on my own because you have come to indwell me and I'm the temple and you want to actually do it through me. And so, Lord, today, teach me how to start to crave spiritual milk that I might grow up into this salvation that I have. And I believe that you will make this transformation and watch what he does through those who believe that he will. I love you. See you next week.